Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our worst service this morning. Good to see many come out and worship the Lord with us this morning, and I pray that our content and our scripture this morning will provide us with some insight and some encouragement here this today. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning, we'll move into a text that, by God's providence, has fallen on me to preach during what may be considered a most relevant time. It is a heavy portion of Scripture that requires diligent interpretation and especially so in our application. Two years ago when I started preaching through First Peter, I would not have guessed that we would be facing the kinds of challenges that we're facing today, especially citizens of a so-called free society. But nevertheless, here we are. And God's Word speaks and has much to say to what we're facing here. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, let's read our text, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So as we move through our text this morning, I make no unattainable promises that you will leave here today with all the answers regarding our political climate that we find ourselves in. But... By the grace of God, I hope to provide some biblical clarification and tools that will benefit us all as we strive as a body of believers to navigate these political waters in such a manner, as Peter mentions in verse 12 of uh, chapter 2, to keep our conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Most importantly, I pray that this morning will bless you and each one of us and encourage us to continue as faithful children of God, to seek God's will in His Word and to humbly submit to His Word in a manner that emboldens our witness to a lost world and glorifies our Lord. And now because of the nature of the content of the text this morning, I think it would benefit us all to remember a bit of the background of this epistle. Peter wrote this epistle to a small persecuted minority, believed to be mostly those in Rome, but recognizing that this suffering is spreading. And introduces the theme of suffering in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He continues throughout the letter, chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Chapter 5, verse 9, resist him, speaking of the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering you are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And perhaps one of the most notable ones in this text in chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, 
And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter is addressing their current persecutions, potential persecutions to come, as well as other conditions and circumstances that create suffering and grief in his readers' lives. We see this theme of suffering highlighted throughout this epistle. But we also recognize here this morning the presence, expectation, and intent of suffering in the lives of believers. Unlike much of today's feel-good health, wealth, prosperity, live your best life now, and other false teachings that are infiltrating the church and poisoning those who embrace it. But we do not stop at the idea of suffering because we also see how the believer is not left without a hope. But rather, we have a living hope, an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading hope. And because of this, our suffering tests and purifies our faith. And as chapter 1 verse 7 of 1 Peter illustrates, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Continuing to look at their background, I know I previously stated two years ago in my introduction that Peter wrote this epistle during the time of Nero's persecution of Christians when according to the early 2nd century historian Uh, Tacitus, Nero burned Christians alive as human torches, rolling them in pitch and igniting them to light his gardens at night. He would also wrap Christians in animal skins and feed them to wild animals as a form of public entertainment for onlookers. Now that said, I'm not so convinced anymore that this epistle was written during the time of persecution, but maybe right before, and commentaries differ on that a little bit. But either way, we clearly see Peter's recognition of the suffering that believers were enduring for the cause of Christ at the hands of society and the culture around them. Nero was no friend to the Christian even before the persecutions, official persecutions began as history records them. So they were suffering at the hands of the society and culture around them as well as living under the rule of the pagan government. Romans viewed Christians, like Jews, as antisocial, labeling them as atheists for believing in only one God and rejecting the multitude of gods that Rome had adopted. They were called cannibals for claiming to eat Jesus' body and drinking his blood in reference to the Lord's Supper, and incestuous for statements referring for their love of their brothers and sisters. So the Apostle Peter is addressing a persecuted church. They were dispersed abroad, in chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They were discouraged and probably confused at the persecution they were facing because of their faith. Peter opens his epistle by encouraging them to remain strong and reminds them to look to Christ, the source of their salvation and their inheritance in Him, and the hope of His return to take the church with Him to glory He begins with a stark reminder of the gospel and the hope of the believer in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And he goes on in verse 6, in this, this truth, So while they're facing their persecutions, while they're suffering for the sake of Christ, he tells them, in this, this salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The church is to rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the promised inheritance of eternal salvation, even though now, for a little while, they are faced with various trials. He contrasts their eternal hope with the temporal sufferings they now face. 
The temporal hardships, the temporal persecutions that believers in the church face now are contrasted with the eternal hope of salvation, with the eternal hope of glory. You see, Peter understands that suffering will be normal for the obedient Christian. Because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in his suffering. Persecution will be a result of following Christ, for the world hated him first and will hate us in turn. Gospel of John, chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. John writes, if the world hates you, speaking, Jesus speaking here, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. It is to this end that the Scripture speaks much of the eternal glory of God and our inheritance with Christ as contrast to the temporary afflictions that we face here on this earth. And having highlighted the believer's identity in Christ and what makes us all exiles or aliens in this foreign land, Peter implores believers in chapter 2, verse 12, as we read earlier, to conduct themselves in an honorable manner conduct themselves in an honorable manner that our good deeds will bring glory to the name of Christ. This is Peter's expected response to believers. We have been saved from the, our sin. We've been saved from eternal hell. And though we suffer and face trials and persecutions here on earth, though we face a society that is against us, though we face pagan governments that try to rule us, Conduct yourselves in an honorable manner that your deeds will bring glory to the name of Christ. And it is on this note that he progresses into instructions for his readers in verse 13. What this conduct is to look like pertaining to the government and then further to the workplace as well as families. Today our text falls, as we read earlier, on governing authorities. The Christian's submission to governing authorities. This morning, I want to look at three facets of the believer's submission to governing authorities. And we have these on your outlines that you have this morning. The first one, the precept to be subject to every human institution is found in verse 13 and 14. The second, the purpose to silence foolish people, verse 15. And the third facet, the prescription to live as free servants of God in verse 16 and 17. We'll repeat these as we move on. But number one, the precept, be subject to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. As we saw earlier this morning, Peter's command in verse 13 and 14 follows the antecedent scripture in verse 12, where he says, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This follows the same pattern as the Apostle Paul used in chapter 12 of Romans. where he highlights the marks of a true Christian in your Bible, the heading. I know the ESV translation has the the heading in chapter 12, verse 9, says the marks of the true Christian. And he highlights this before giving the same instruction in chapter 13 as Peter is giving in our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. 
The Apostle Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right after this scripture, right after this instruction, marks of, of true Christian, Paul continues into chapter 13. He says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So surely we see that both of these apostles had in mind that part of what living peaceably or honorably was for Christians in a pagan culture involved being subject to governing authorities. This then is not of question for believers. Should we be subject to governments or should we not? That is not the question. But rather, we wrestle, especially during times like we live in, what does this submission look like? And is that that we want to dig into a little bit? Peter begins the section again with the imperative, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. To be subject speaks speaks of recognizing one's appropriate station in life and then to fulfill it accordingly. Christians do not belong to this world. And as Peter puts it, we are exiles ultimately under God's authority. Yet we are told to be subject to governing authorities while we live on this earth. The term translated to be subject or submit yourselves in other translations comes from a word meaning to arrange information under a commander. To arrange information under the commander. Submission to rulers is the right response for Christians because God appoints them. God has appointed all governing authorities. The reason we are to submit, Peter notes, is for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This phrase is the ultimate rationale for our subjection. But it is not only because of the demands of society, but for the Lord's sake we submit to every institution, whether emperor is supreme or governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We submit to authority for God's sake. He is the one who has appointed them. We saw in verse 13 of Ro- or chapter 13 of Romans, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We subject ourselves to governing authorities, not because these individuals are personally worthy of our submission necessarily, 
but again, for the Lord's sake. Because by submitting to them, we honor God by obeying His word. We are to be subject to all authorities, first to the emperor or king, for he is the supreme civil authority from whom, theoretically, all other authorities flows. In his commentary, Daniel Doriani commented, After the king, we submit to governors, that is, to the array of local authorities, procurators, proconsuls, and lesser magistrates. Every nation has its supreme and lesser governors, and we must submit to them, even to local commissioners who rule roads, commerce, the military, markets, etc. So at a minimum, we respect the office of our governments, and we commit to pray for them. Doriani goes on to say, When Peter wrote this, Nero was emperor. Few had less merit than he. Beyond his cruelties, he ruled poorly for most of his reign, and more than most other emperors, he claimed deity. If Peter could command the church to submit to Nero, we can certainly submit to our governors, take, submit if our governor takes a stand that we consider erroneous. But he goes on to clarify. In scripture, the believer's submission, though, to human authorities is always partial and proximate. Blind obedience is never required. The Christian is always in principle, ready to rebel, ready to say no in the face of wicked command, for we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29, end quote. Christ himself lived under the unjust and unrighteous rule of the Jewish and Roman authorities, yet he never questioned their right to rule. Though he did denounce their sin, he never sought to overthrow the authorities. But we see Peter has given the government a twofold task. This authority that we're supposed to submit to, the role of the government, is a twofold task according to Scripture. And Peter repeats what Paul says, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter reminded his readers that government has a valid and necessary God-appointed purpose. The presence of political corruption, though it abounded then as it does today, should not blind us to the legitimate role of government that God has ordained. John Murray writes regarding relation of church and the state, the institution of civil governments is by divine ordination. And it is only because governments have divine sanction that those who govern may exercise this authority and those who are governed submit to it. The civil magistrate is the minister of God and he is the minister of God for good. Civil government has its own distinct sphere of operation and jurisdiction. This sphere is that of guarding, maintaining, and promoting justice, order, and peace. It is, it is its function to prevent encroachment upon and to guard the exercise of God-given liberties, rights, and privileges of the citizens. And it must provide against attempts to deprive the citizens of opportunity to discharge their divine obligations. He goes on to say, Since the civil magistrate is invested with his authority by God and is obliged by divine ordinance to discharge these functions, he is responsible to God, the one living true God who has ordained him. And so having been ordained by God, it is the government's responsibility then to govern according to the revealed will of God. And they will all answer to God for the times that they disregard His word and overstep the bounds of His ordination. Murray goes on, It must be recognized, however, that it is only with His own restricted with his own restricted sphere of authority that the civil magistrate in this capacity as civil magistrate is to apply the revelation of God's will as provided in Scripture. If the civil magistrate should attempt in his capacity as magistrate to carry into effect the demands of Scripture which bear upon him in other capacities or the demand of Scripture upon other institutions, 
he would immediately be guilty of violating his prerogatives and of contravening the requirements of Scripture. So we are to submit to a government. But the Scripture gives that same government very clear direction and very clear instruction. And we must note at this time that the sphere of the church is distinct from that of the state. The church is not subordinate to the state in matters of doctrine, worship, or conscience. But rather, both the church and the state are subordinate to God. God has instituted governing authorities to rule in the civil areas of this earth. But God has instituted elders as leaders in the church. Not governments. Qualified men who, according to His Word, lead the church. To quote our own Pastor Mike from this December 13th, 2020 sermon, he said, Government goes beyond their God-given bounds when they dictate issue of conscience or issues of worship. God, government, sorry, goes beyond their God-given bounds when they dictate issues of conscience or issues of worship. God himself is the Lord of the conscience, and God himself is the Lord of the church. End quote. According to Peter and Paul in chapter 13 of Romans, we are to be subject to the governing authorities because they have a specific God-given purpose, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. God has not left us to wonder what the purpose of government is. And God has not given the government to be without excuse in how to fulfill these duties. He establishes this for us clearly in his word. In fact, let's jump to Deuteronomy. We'll look at a couple passages in the Old Testament here. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statues and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. Those were instruction laws concerning Israel's kings. Psalm chapter 72. Psalm chapter 72, the first four verses. A Psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And one more in Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O King of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in his place." For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of the house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Do justice and righteousness. Deliver the people from the oppressor. This is the role of godly emperors and kings, godly governing authorities. 
Just prior to the Apostle Paul's instruction to be subject to governing authorities, he states in Romans 12 and verse 19, Never avenge yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this in this manner. It is one of the great functions of the state, the powers that be, the government, to enable us to live peaceably with one another, to maintain order, to avoid disorder. Do not take vengeance yourself. God will take vengeance. And he does this partly through the state. So I am arguing that Paul's words here in chapter 13, to be subject are a continuation of the theme of living peaceably with others and not taking vengeance yourself, but allowing God to do so, either directly or else through the medium of the state, a medium he so often uses. So we see that if the government's role is to do justice, to protect righteousness, to defend the poor and the needy against the oppressors, then the government fulfills that in part in doing their role and taking up the sword and in, in taking vengeance and God using them as an instrument to apply vengeance. So I trust we're starting to get the picture of the duties of government and the relationship tied to Christian submission. MacArthur notes in his commentary, the role of government in Scripture is clear. To create fear that restrains evil, punish those who do wrong, and protect those who do right. The government's role is clear. Create fear that restrains evil, punish those who do wrong, and protect those who do right. So what then is the responsibility of the church when the government fails in its duties? What if the government has become the oppressor? How is the church to react then? Seeing as the church is to be committed to the task of proclaiming the whole counsel of God... Therefore, the counsel of God as pertaining, to the, as pertaining to the responsibility to all people and institutions. So if the church is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, then that includes the counsel of God which pertains to all people's responsibilities, institutions' responsibilities, and the function of different institutions. <clears throat> so again, I lean on the wisdom of John Murray in this. The church is charged to define what the functions of these institutions are. The church is charged to define the functions of what these institutions are. Consequently, when the civil magistrate trespasses the limits of his authority, it is incumbent upon the church to expose and condemn such violation of his authority. Then the civil mag- when the civil magistrate fails to exercise his God-given authority in the protection and promotion of the obligations, rights, and liberties of the citizens, the church has the right and duty to condemn such inaction and by its proclamation of the counsel of God to confront the civil magistrate with his responsibility and promote the correction of such neglect. We get that. The church's responsibility to direct the government in their duties. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this matter, the state abuses its calling when it tyrannizes over people. And it is the business of the church in her preaching and teaching to make it clear. The church does not change or subject its worship, its teaching, its practices to the government. It is up to the church when the government tyrannizes over people, it is up to the church in her preaching and teaching to make this clear. What I'm suggesting is that rather than arrest faithful pastors like James Coates, Tim Stevens, for obeying God's word in the matter of his church and worship, the governing authorities should have gone to them as well as other faithful pastors for counsel regarding their duties and how it pertains to worship in the church. So we live in an exact backwards method where the government, pagans, are allowed to tell the church what their worship is to look like. And then when pastors remain faithful, proclaim their word, proclaim the truth, the government comes in and arrests them and puts them in prison. And it doesn't fall on deaf ears that these same governments profess to be Christian. They're defying the very God they profess to believe in. 
And as much as we submit to them in their punishments often, they will one day stand before God in judgment and answer to the fact that they put themselves over God. That's what they need to realize they're doing. When they step into the area of worship in the church and remove what God has said and punish those who are faithful in this work, they put themselves in place of God and they will, lest they repent, answer for those blasphemies one day. They should be looking to the church for guidance. They should be looking to the church for counsel. It is the role of pastors and elders to proclaim the full counsel of God, which includes worship, which includes governing institutions, which includes the church. The scripture is clear. As Christians and citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we are still to be subject to our civil governments here on earth, for they have been given, again, a specific duty by God And we submit for the Lord's sake for this specific purpose. This leads us to our second facet of the believer's submission and governing authorities. And in case you're worried, that was the longest point. The others are shorter. So number two, the purpose to silence foolish people. And we find this in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Once again, the reason Christians are to be willfully subject to governing authorities is because it is the will of God. But look again at Peter's next phrase in verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Our submission has a purpose. To be a witness in this world so as to stop the mouths of ignorant people. But it is important to note that the use of the word foolish This term means senseless and without reason. The claims that are being silenced are those that are false. False accusations targeted at Christians for living faithfully in a pagan culture. Looking again at some history surrounding Peter's audience, Christians were loathed for their vices. Nero blamed Christians for the fire of Rome because they were hated for their abominations and adhered to as a pernicious superstition. After the fire, Christians were arrested and slain, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race. Suetonius, a historian, stated that Nero punished Christians as a sect professing a new and impious superstition. So even apart from these vile actions that Nero used to persecute Christians, he loathed them. Their crimes, some accused them of cannibalism, possibly willful misconstrual of the Lord's Supper, as we mentioned earlier. The charge of hatred of the human race grew from their refusal to join in worshiping the emperor or local patron deities. We would simply say that they refused to compromise their faith. But if refusal to worship false gods is hatred of humanity, then false charges are inevitable. The Christian's refusal to compromise on their faith and practice has always drawn criticism and slander from the sinful world in which we find ourselves. And I dare say we see this evidence ever so strongly in our present-day circumstances. We see it online. We see it in many different institutions. And I know we are fortunate and blessed in our community here for how things have gone, but... Let's not turn a blind eye to what many brothers and sisters are enduring for the sake of Christ. The slander that they are facing. In spite of this knowledge that pagans will always twist, contort, and misrepresent what Christians say and do, the believer must strive to live in such a manner as to make the accusations of the world baseless. Peter reiterates this in our passage, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We have all heard the saying before, actions speak louder than words. 
This is, in essence, what Peter is saying. Our profession will mean nothing if it is not followed by a faithful life. Our words are given validity by our godly living. According to Peter, a faithful life is a result of abstaining from the passions of the flesh and godly submission in matters of government, workplace, and family. In context, Peter meant that by obeying the law, we can avoid unnecessary and illegitimate criticism from the world around us. Jesus did this by paying taxes, Matthew 17, 24 to 27. We won't turn there this morning. And Paul also instructed Christians to pay their taxes, as we saw in chapter 13 of Romans, verses 6 and 7. Still, Peter is well aware that believers might suffer because of persecution and false condemnation. So he calls us to do as much good as we possibly can. This included submission to civil authorities unless it requires disobedience to God. And by doing good in this way, the hope is that it may silence the most ignorant and foolish slanders that come our way. Paul expounds on this in his letter to Titus in chapter 1, sorry, in chapter 3. In the first three verses, Paul writes, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Note the contrast here in behavior. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. The good behavior contrasted with that of the foolish people in this passage should put to silence much of what is thrown at Christians and the church. If we live well enough, people should refuse to believe the lies said about us. Next, Peter gives the instruction in accomplishing this godly behavior, or as I've called it, our third point, the prescription. Live as free servants of God. In verses 16 and 17, Peter writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter anticipates that some of his readers would object to the demand of submitting to governing authorities and other human institutions. After all, are we not free? Were we not liberated by Christ's sacrifice? One might even ask, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, how can we submit? to human rulers, to earthly rulers. To this, Peter replies, live as people who are free. Live as servants of God. Doriani comments on this passage, we are free from sin, from the law, and from death. But that is no excuse for insubordination. The Christian is free from sin, but is a slave of God. 1 Corinthians 7, For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. As Martin Luther observed, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. Also, a Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all and subject to all. Christian freedom has delivered them from bondage of serving sin and into the privilege of being slaves of righteousness. This is what our Christian freedom is. We transfer from being slaves to sin to slaves of righteousness, to slaves of our King. Romans chapter 6 Romans chapter 6, verses, starting verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to slaves or lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For at the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are free in that regard. Therefore, we do not use our freedom to serve the very things that we have been freed from. We are to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So as slaves of righteousness, we are to live as free servants of God, which includes obedience to his rule and his command, which we have seen in our text is to be subject to governing authorities. So it is specifically because we are free from sin, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of Christ, we are to be obedient to him and serve him, and he instructs us to be subject to governing authorities. So we see we honor God by submitting to human institution for his sake, as long as this does not encourage us or cause us to sin. In fact, Peter sums up this precept by to be subject to every human institution by using four imperatives in verse 17 to define what the prescription to live as free servants of God looks like. And these four imperatives are honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God. Honor the emperor. And you'll notice in verse 17, Peter uses a literary device called a chiasm. Some of you may remember a few weeks back, Pastor Mike explained this in one of his sermons as he was pointing out a chiastic structure being used in his text. But just as a refresher, a chiastic structure or a chiasm is a literary device which indicates a crossing or inversion of related elements within parallel constructions. So a chiasm helps us to identify the apex of the story, or rather the heart of the story, so to speak. And what how we use it is it's framed in a way where you'll have A, B, C, B, A. So statements lining up that are parallel with one another. You'd have two A statements, two B statements, statements, and maybe a C statement, which creates a point. And that becomes the point of the subject. That becomes the point of the verse or the focus point that we look at. And Peter uses a similar structure here in this passage. In our text, he makes uh, uses a chiastic structure made up of two parallel thoughts, creating what we would call an A, B, B, A pattern. Now follow along here. A, the first one, the first imperative that we looked at, honor everyone. B, love the brotherhood. The second B, fear God. And then back to A, honor the emperor. So honor everyone and honor the emperor are parallel thoughts and they signify behavior outside of the believing community. Honoring everyone and honoring the emperor. This is behavior outside of the believing community. Now B, love the brotherhood and fear God are parallel thoughts that signify the believer's behavior inside the believing community. Now, why is this important? As I defined a minute ago, a chiasm helps us to identify the apex or the heart of the story. So in this verse then, Peter is identifying that B, loving the brotherhood and fearing God, takes precedent over honor everyone and honor the emperor. So we have four statements, but they're categorized in this way. And in this manner, Peter is specifically emphasizing that honoring or fearing God and loving the brotherhood takes precedent over honor everyone 
and honor the emperor. Though both of these are sets of imperatives that are to be obeyed. We are to obey both of these, but sometimes, as we looked at earlier, and as we well know, these seeming commands contradict. How can we fear God and obey the government if the government is telling us to do something that God opposes? So he's giving us the structure, this pattern to look at it, and really in, in order to put these things in first, our commitment to the church, to the brotherhood, and to God. Second, honoring others and the emperor. So we see clearly Peter's intent in showing that as we honor everyone and the emperor, we only do so in as far as we are able to do so while biblically adhering to the commands to love the brotherhood and fear God. This is important to note as we strive to obey government, even in today's political climate, but doing so within biblical mandate. I'll address this a little further in my conclusion, but for now let's briefly look at these imperatives individually. The first imperative, we are to honor all people, not just kings, emperors, and governors. Every person is made in the image of God, therefore we owe all people a degree of honor. Treat all people with the respect they deserve, even if only because they all bear the image of God. The second imperative, we are to love the brotherhood. Christians are to be a witness to the world of their love for other believers. The Apostle John has much to say on this. Let's, let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John, chapter 13 Verse 34, John writes, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John also writes in 1 John, First John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. And in 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So we see a special love within the church, believers to other believers, brothers and sisters, Do we love all people? Yes. But in the same manner, we have a special love for our own families, our own siblings, our own children, our own parents, our own grandparents. Likewise, as believers, we are part of the family of God. There's a special love that we have for each other as family, as brothers and sisters. A mark of a true believer is our love for other believers. All Christians belong to the same family and all are brothers and sisters in this manner. In contrast to honoring all people outside of the faith, fellow Christians are to be loved. The third imperative, fear God. Deuteronomy 13.4 says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Fearing God, as MacArthur notes, includes trusting Him in all circumstances, no matter how difficult they are. Christians must worship Him as the sovereign one who orchestrates everything according to His perfect will. Such fear also encourages believers to submit to all earthly authorities because they have utmost respect for the one who has commanded them to do so. So when we fear God we seek to submit to the government, to the authorities, as much as we can, because God has commanded us to do so. The fourth imperative given by Peter in this verse is to honor the emperor. And this brings the issue back to full circle, back to the initial command in verse 13, where we are to be subject to human institutions. 
And by doing so, this is what's called, uh, forming what is called an inclusio, which is a biblical, in biblical studies, it is a literary device based on a concentric principle, also known as bracketing or an envelope structure, which consists of creating a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and end of a section. So in our case, Peter has enveloped or enveloped or or bracketed this whole section between the statements, be subject to every human institution and honoring the emperor. And in between everything else, everything in between is given to us then in order to rightly understand those instructions and properly apply them to our lives. So simply quoting, be subject to governing authorities or honor the emperor, misses the point. These are commands. It is important. But in structuring and putting it this way, we miss what those commands mean and what, what our expectation is, is if we stop at quoting a single verse and moving on. We need to look at what is encapsulated within these brackets to submit to every human institution, to honor the government and see everything that we looked at this morning, to see what the role of government is and what the role of the church is and how this relationship works together. The purpose of submission isn't blind obedience. It's to put to stop to the ignorant, foolish people. How do we do this? By living as servants of God, serving Him, loving the brotherhood, fearing God, above honoring everyone and honoring the emperor. So we see how important it is to to look at those things and to get a further, a deeper understanding of that in order to understand what those verses imply. So moving into a conclusion. I feel it would be remiss to present this teaching without attempting to provide some specific relevance and application to what we see going on in our world today. We acknowledge the command and expectation to be subject to our current governing authorities, no matter how much we may disagree with them, or perhaps see through their lies and political games. I know Pastor Mike has instructed the church previously as well, though we continue to obey God and things of worship and practice in church, there may come a point where we will need to submit to the government and facing the punishment of that. Again, we are reminded of Tim Stevens and Pastor James Coates. They stood firm. They did not submit to ungodly mandates, but at the same time, they submitted when the government came knocking at their door. But this where I believe is ever so important to understand the purpose of government, as we saw in our first bullet point. And also to keep in mind the importance of Peter's use of the chiasm, indicating our superior loyalty to the Christians have to the church and to our eternal king. We must have this in mind as we navigate the current mandates in government overreach. Peter is showing us clearly that our loyalty is superior when it comes to the church and to God than it must be to the world around us and to the governing authorities around us. Let us consider the phrase, love our neighbor. We so often hear this from both pagan governments and many so-called churches We are told to believe that loving our neighbor means avoiding them, avoiding any physical contact, not to gather or fellowship with them in person, quarantining or isolating ourselves from others, socially distancing ourselves from others. This is what the government is telling us loving our neighbor looks like. What does the Bible instruct us? In the textbook, Bible Doctrine textbook, there's a list of the one another's. Love one another. We won't go into all the verses here today, but love one another. Live in harmony with one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Be kind one to another. Forgive one another. Sing praises with one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Speak truth to one another. Encourage one another. Seek good for one another. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Be humble toward one another. 
By putting these commands into practice, God's people fulfill the second great commandment, which is to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as yourself. This is what it looks like. We do not go to a pagan government to have this command defined. We go to the word of God. And if it contradicts the government, we always, always obey God. The government will stand in judgment for their mandates when we obey God, and in this way, we love our neighbor. The most loving thing we can do for our neighbor is to submit and to fear God above honoring the government when the government tells us to do the opposite. A statement I saw recently, and this is just some food for thought, Equating love your neighbor with taking the jab or wearing a mask is by definition legalism because God's law never requires it. If we define a biblical command with something that God's word does not use, it is legalism. We must be sure to define biblical commands with biblical language. As I quoted Pastor Mike earlier, government goes beyond their God-given bounds when they dictate issues of conscience or issues of worship. You are not required to obey the government regarding matters of conscience. In fact, I would suggest that as Christians, we are obligated to question all things, especially coming from experts and institutions that promote the slaughter of millions of unborn babies. The experts who don't even know what the difference is between a boy and a girl. The experts who encourage surgeries to such children. Now, they're not all like that. And not everything these people say is false. Absolutely not. But for this reason, we must look into these things. We must not blindly follow these experts, their recommendations. And so in matters of conscience, and I don't want to make this a thing regarding uh, uh, pro-vax or anti-vax or anything like that, but with the vaccine, currently it is being used by the government to coerce the populations into submission. <clears throat> and you're not required to obey the government in matters of conscience. If your conscience doesn't allow for you to take it, you are not required to do that. The government is not lord of the conscience. God is. Likewise, if your conscience allows you to take the vaccine, then you are not sinning by doing that either. Each person has to inform their own conscience, and as long as it does not contradict Scripture, is free to live according to their conscience. How about matters of worship? The government has for almost two years tried to tell the church how to worship, limit the congregation, no singing, no embracing, social distancing, no Lord's Supper, or some variation of these. The writer of Hebrews says we are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's God's instruction. Do we submit to government? Yes. Unless it contradicts God. Then God rules supreme and we fear Him first. I don't want to have people leave here this morning thinking we don't obey or we do obey. No, God is clear in His Word. Be subject to governing authorities. My attempt is to give us the tools and some understanding and maybe what that looks like and, and apply that to today's, um, with what's going on today. And many are concerned about the witness of the church when the church disobeys. So what about the concern by many in the church and even members of certain coalitions that the world is watching, therefore Christians should submit to all government restrictions. I would respond that it is specifically because the world is watching that we must never submit to Caesar in areas which belong to Christ alone. Through the bold stand taken by few yet faithful pastors and churches, the witness to the world 
is though we are in the world, we are not of the world. And though you arrest us, fine us, mock us, deride us, we will obey Christ and thus proclaim his supremacy over any and all worldly institutions. Christ is king of all. We submit to government because God has instructed us to do so. But we submit with that which pertains to consistent living according to the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that you will take the text that was proclaimed today and that you will use that to help us to understand, Lord, help us to navigate these times, help us to respect and honor our governments, help us to pray for them more, something that we have failed so often to do. Lord, help us to put it into perspective and to worship and honor you first and foremost. Help us to inform our conscience according to your word. Help us to live godly lives in such a manner that the worst they can say against us is we were obedient to the word of God. And Lord, we pray today for the government of this nation, for the government of our province, for our local governments. We pray that you would give them wisdom according to your word. That you would grant them repentance unto salvation for those that are not saved, Lord. And that they might use their office and their position to glorify and exalt your name as King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.